We know the problem in Galatia. We know the thing that Paul addressed in Galatia. I think we all could pretty much quote it. And uh, tonight, I'm going to try to sum up Paul's solution as directed by the Holy Spirit. What will help the people in Galatia? What will help us? God's plan in his gospel. So let's look in chapter 1, beginning in chapter 1. Verses 3 through 5, we see both the source and the purpose of the gospel. Introduced in verses 6 and 7, we found out that Galatians are turning to a counterfeit, which, by definition, is disqualification in this case because there is only one true saving gospel. Verses 8 and 9. Here is the accursed that Paul pronounces. Anyone presenting another gospel is accursed. In verse 12 through verse 10 of chapter 2, Paul has to defend his authenticity as an apostle. He gives his history and his testimony and his credibility. It's established here. In chapter 2, verses 11 through 16, we find the account when Paul had to address Peter at Antioch. We see Paul's willingness to defend a consistent treatment of those endorsing confusion. Paul, I mean, Peter was just entering into and pretty much uh, putting forth confusion uh, that was hurting the gospel, but Paul was willing to stand even against somebody with authority, even with, even against somebody that was his senior. He was a well-known, Peter was a well-known and respected apostle, but the gospel was worth the contention. In chapter 2, verse 20, the believer's death to self and Christ's indwelling is taught. In chapter 3, verse 1, Paul assures the Galatians that he accurately, in the past, presented gospel truth. What is that truth? Summed up, Christ and Him crucified. In chapter 3, verses 9 through 4, we begin looking at Abraham. Paul puts forth Abraham as the example of salvation by faith, not works, and the superiority of the new covenant. Then we go to chapter 5. Verses 1 through 4 is stated, In Christ is freedom. In the law is bondage. These two are mutually exclusive. Each one must be taken in its entirety, and that is something the Galatians could not do, something only Jesus ever done. No one had ever done that successfully in its entirety. And Christ done it not for himself, but he done it for his elect. He done it for the believers. In verses 16 through 25, we see the fruit of the Spirit versus the works of the flesh. These also are naturally opposed to one another. A person, a believer, well, a person at all, especially a believer, will not be able to be living to please his own flesh and pleasing the Holy Spirit at the same time. 
they're going in different directions. It can't happen. Living a life pleasing to God is only lived by the Holy Spirit's indwelling. And then, in verse 25 of chapter 5 through verse 10 in chapter 6, Paul winds down, like in other, in other epistles, giving instructions about general church life, healthy church life, about church growth, how we're supposed to, uh, and our responsibilities to each other. We are to faithfully administer love to one another and receive love from one another. And that brings us to where we are tonight. Chapter 6, verse 11. Instead of reading, it's a small, small section. I think I'll address it <clears throat> as we go. We've noticed in other epistles, when Paul writes, usually towards the end of the epistle, we see it in 2 Thessalonians 3.17, Colossians 4.18, uh, 1 Corinthians 16.21. Paul's custom, they had the word has come down to us as a secretary. I think the proper pronunciation was amanuensis is what they had then. This was a person who they dictated to and they wrote it down. This was Paul's practice. In Romans 16.22, you'll find out that he is named. One of them is named. Is my one of, the only one we know. Uh, Tertius. He says, I, Tertius, wrote this with my own hand. These other books, Paul says, I wrote it with my own hand. That's what we find here. In verse 11... He says, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. In this time, and this might have lended a possibility of Paul's having been uh, misquoted, having been impersonated, because letters were easy to forge. Not everybody could write, but those that could write could be, you know, you could hire somebody or write a letter and forge it and say that another person wrote it. And eventually this came, you know, the king had a seal ring. He could, make, he could authenticate his. Not everybody had that. Uh, it became a practice to have a signature, a certain kind of writing. Paul says, this is my kind of writing. He says, see with what large letters I'm writing to you. The way most people right now, uh, the kids here, are so proud to show you that they're learning to write in cursive. The letters are hooked together. It's smaller. It flows. This is not what we have here. Paul says, I am writing with big individual letters. It leads us to think that uh, he couldn't write good, write well. He couldn't see well, possibly. All these things fall into play in the, in the epistle. The thing is, this was Paul's Standard. This was something the Galatians would recognize. Put, put the things together. He says earlier in a chapter, uh, chapter 4, 13, 14, he said, you would have plucked out my eyes. It was because of an ailment that I was there at all. He said, that's why I was there in the first place. If you could have, you loved me so much, you would have plucked out your eyes for me. The Galatians would put all this, these the logistics together. They would say, okay, it is Paul. This is 
an authentic letter. Paul says, I'm writing with my own hand. This was like his, his signature. For us, for our context tonight, I hope that we can look at this, and it really bugs some people, if you see a letter or especially a post and somebody has got their caps locked, you get that and you say, why are you yelling at me? They're not. It's, it's just big letters. I hope we'll hear this like that tonight. This is the end. This is his final. He hammers this nail down, down below the surface of the wood, drives another nail beside it, bends it over, and nails that one down over it. He says, this is all I'm going to say. He says, this is, this is the final installment. This is important. So I hope we'll hear this as if it has cap lock. I'm writing to you with my own hand. And he repeats a lot. Uh, I, I picture this, and we've talked about this in every session, just about the way Paul will overlap and the way Paul will repeat things. He'll say the same thing in a different way. He's weaving this net, this cloth, Closer and closer, so the holes are closer together, so that they have to understand. You have to see what I'm talking. You can't. The information can't get through the way he's weaving this so close together. He repeats it. He says, "It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh." Here and in verse 13, he says, "These people, the Judaizers, the people who are teaching error, they're doing this." so that they'll look good in the eyes of their peers. Also, think about it, more proselytes equals more temple participants and more money. That's just, that's part of it. It was pride. These, uh, I know it's a big change going from Judaism as being accepted for several thousand years. All of a sudden, there's the new covenant. Jesus says, no, it's not works, it's faith. It never has been works. It's faith in the Messiah that's to come. Imagine, if, if we're sitting here in this service, all of a sudden, there's an edict goes out. We get it on our phones. We don't drive on the right side of the road anymore. We drive on the left side of the road, starting tonight. When you leave, you drive on the left side of the road. How is that going to work? That would be so confusing. Who didn't get the text? Who's coming up the road? They're going to think you're doing wrong. When you... It's similar here. This thing has changed. Everything has changed for the religious world. You see what I'm saying? He's saying, and I, and I get that, these Judaizers are holding on to the old traditions and works and temple worship and sacrifices and summed up in circumcision, it's hard to let go. So they take, they hang on to their Judaism and they say, okay, we'll, we'll just put Jesus right in here with it and smooth it down. We'll put uh, Christianity, we'll put baptism in here, we'll put faith in here and we'll smooth it down so that, so that it'll work. It won't work. They are exclusive. 
But you see, you see the point. It's hard to let go. So they said, we'll, we'll get these proselytes and we'll take them in. We'll make them Jews. We'll accept Christianity, but they've got to be a Jew too. You see, they, he said, they, so that they wouldn't be persecuted. A good showing in the flesh. They will force you to be per- circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted. You see, they accepted Christians, Christian converts, but they've done it on their terms. With Christianity, or faith in Christ, as an addition to Judaism, that didn't get them, that raised no eyebrows. I mean, it might raise a few eyebrows, but it didn't cause problems. The thing is, when you say no to Judaism, and you say Christ Christ is not a better way of salvation, you say he is the way of salvation, then you start causing problems. Uh, As long as you say there's no problem as long as Christ crucified is preached in addition to Judaism, but if you preach Christ crucified instead of Judaism, that made them mad. That got, they got both sides persecuted. They said, Paul says, they're only doing this so that they can avoid persecution. They're not going to. They're not going to quit their temple worship. They're not going to quit their uh, their way of believing. But they want to take Jesus in. They want to take Christianity in. In addition to, you don't add Christianity to anything. He says uh, in verse thirteen, we see, for even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. But they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Now we've talked about this before. This subtle way Paul has of wording things. Picture it. Flesh, circumcision. He's saying they are glorying. They are making a trophy out of you as if they have a a bag full of this product. They're, do, they're doing this, and they can brag before their peers, and they can say, look how many I got. Look how many proselytes I got this week. He's saying they're only doing it for selfish reasons. They're doing it so they can, they can get glory in your flesh. It's, it's kind of like a, a slave trade. Here and in verse 12, it has a literal connotation. The young Christians were potential trophies. This statement actually refers back to before in, verse, in chapter 3, verse 21. The fact that they suggested that law could produce righteousness shows that they didn't understand God's economy or His holiness or what Christ had accomplished in fulfilling the types and the ceremonies. They, they couldn't put the, the pieces together. They would have saw that there is no glory for us. There is no glory for the Judaizers if they're doing it, if they're believing in Christ right. If they're even if they're doing Judaism right, there would there would be no glory in yourself. It just don't match up. And Paul was Paul was pointing out these glaring uh, problems to the to the uh, Galatians. He he goes on and says, "I'm not like that. I would not do that." 
Far be it from me to boast. He says, I'm not going to boast in your flesh. He said, you are actually the ones of you who believe correctly, the ones who have put their faith in Christ. If I wanted to, I could brag. I'm not going to brag. He said, I don't brag like that. I didn't save you. I don't brag except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the Lord has been crucified to me and I to the world. Remember, Paul had lived on both sides of this thing, both sides of religion. And he realized now that works don't work. How had he uh, come to this conclusion? He had actually excelled. If works was a way to do it, he would have been the guy. He would have been the, the one that would uh, prove it. Once he learned the truth about Jesus and how Paul compared to Jesus and how he compared to what God wanted, what did Paul say? He says, I cannot brag. I, can't, I have no grounds for myself. As a matter of fact, he was humbled. He was grateful to the point that what did he call himself? All his epistles. What did he call us? He, he says, I'm a slave. He says, I'm nobody of note. I've, I've not earned anything myself. Jesus came to me. I would have never went to Jesus. He came to me. He was humbled. Externals have no redeeming quality. Paul recognized his standing in Christ, we, we use that phrase a lot. He recognized his standing both in crucifixion and resurrection. And now, all Paul's motives, all he cared about was what the Spirit told him to do. I always refer to Romans as a good commentary on Galatians. He says in Romans chapter 6, verse 5, For if we have been united with him in a death like his we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. These externals have no redeeming quality. They have no saving quality. It's you're acting on the flesh. You're acting on, you might as well be scratching this piece of wood. It has nothing to do with your spirit. It has nothing to do with your soul. It has nothing to do with your relationship with God. He goes on, chapter, I mean, uh, verse 15, he makes the contrast again. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but what? A new creation. This is also, he repeats himself again. We saw this in chapter 5, verse 6. Be, and he covers both sides of it. If he wanted to, he could say, he could end it with being circumcised. He, he could say, being circumcised is not salvific. And that would be true. What does he say? He says, neither one of them has anything to do with your soul, with your standing with God. Being circumcised will not save you, cannot save you, has not ever saved anybody. Furthermore, remaining uncircumcised cannot condemn you. He covers both sides. Remember, God orders every event in history. To his glory. We're seeing that in our Old Testament readings. We may read it. I have looked at it in the past and say, wow, look how that worked out. Look how God could use that to his glory. No. God made it that way so he can say, look at my glory. Think about it. What is Paul's position on this personally? 
as a strict, law-abiding Jew, what do we know about Paul? He was circumcised. Yet he placed no value in it at all. Since his conversion, since Jesus had come to him, he said his, his understanding of Genesis 17, 11 was now crystal clear. He said he knew that circumcision was a sign. That's exactly what God said it was from the beginning, from day one. He said it's a sign. Now Paul got it. He said it's a sign. It's nothing more. The sign, as a matter of fact, meant nothing at all if it was not accompanied by faith which resulted in good works demonstrated in a holy life. That's what God wanted. He wanted people to be different because they had been changed. Again, Romans 2, verses 28 and 29. Paul again says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Well, the Judaizers certainly thought it was, didn't they? But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. What kind of letter? What does he mean letter? The letter of the law. Even this is a repeat, what we read in Romans. This is not new. We see this all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 10. God said, circumcise your hearts. It never was salvific. Let's look at what he says in verse 16. Paul is wrapping up his letter. And as for all who walk by this rule, what rule is he talking about? If you realize that circumcision is not salvific, if you recognize that your history and your family and your tribe has nothing to do with your relationship with God, if you walk by that rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Now, the word rule right here comes from a Greek word, canon. Where do we recognize that from? From the scriptures. It's not spelled the same. It's K. K-A-N-O-N. It means a standard. It means a method of operating. He says, if you believe in this, there will be peace and mercy. He, he wishes a blessing on them. Peace and mercy be upon them. He says, it will... Produce peace and mercy. Peace and mercy and upon them. He says at the end, it actually points back to what he says at the end of the verse. Puts emphasis on a new creation. Uh, whoever walks by this rule, what will be the result? They'll, I mean, the, the new creation will result, will result in whoever walks by this rule. That's the way it works. Uh, a new creation is what matters what happens in your heart that's what matters the work that God does in your heart not what you do to your flesh not what somebody else does in a sacrifice not what the priest does when he slings blood on you no he says it's about your heart God does his work in the heart and he mentions the Israel of God You see, the men opposing Paul, 
place huge value on history and heritage. We see this. Look at your Bible. You got that much Old Testament. You got this much New Testament. They lived it. They were into it. They valued the law from Moses. Think of how many times Paul alone in this book has quoted Old Testament. They valued the law. They made you think, or they made themselves think, that some of them could actually fulfill the law, could actually live by the law, could actually satisfy God by living by the law. Well, what does it say in verse 13? He says, no. He says, the ones that are telling you this don't even fulfill the law themselves. That's not the way it works. That was false. Paul pointed it out in verse 13. We know that religious Jews saw their tribal and national connection to Abraham as huge, significant. Uh, remember in Matthew chapter 3, verse 9, how Jesus treated the Pharisees. What did he tell them? Uh, paraphrase here just a little bit. He says, don't depend on your ancestry. If God wanted to, he could get glory, all the glory he wanted out of these stones right here. Don't, don't depend on Ab calling Abraham your father. Think about the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Just a regular lady on the street. But she knew about this history and she knew about this contention that went all the way back to the division between the tribes. The Samaritans didn't get along with the Israelites and the Jews. There was a huge thing. It, it was, they loved their history. However, it don't matter if you like it or not. It has nothing to do with your salvation. Here. Paul is restating what he said in chapter 5, verse 7. Again, Paul does not mind repeating. True sons of Abraham are those who are in, who, those who in faith trust Christ. So, what's our uh, lesson on replacement theology? Is Israel... Is the Israel of God believing Jews? Yes, it is. Is the Israel of God believing Gentiles or Galatians? Yes, it is. Is the Israel of God believing and repentant and regenerate North Carolinians? Hallelujah. Yes, it is. This is the Israel of God. It's not a replacement. <laughs> Just like the law and... Faith, the law supported faith. The law supported the new covenant. It's the same here. Israel was not the deal. The church is the deal. The church, Israel pictured the church. In Christ, there is no nationality. Chapter 3, same book, verse 28 says, There is no Jew. There is no Greek, there is no slave or free, no male or female, but all are the same as far as redemption and salvation. It does not take more to save a Gentile 
an African, a South Carolinian than it does anybody else. There is no difference. There's one race, human race. You're either saved or you're lost. There's, there's two categories you fall into. Biblically, historically, salvation is a big deal. It's a huge thing in the Bible. You see, Jews, Jesus wasn't blessed because he was a Jew. And please forgive me if I interchange Hebrews, Jews, and Israel. I think we get the point of that by now. Uh, Jesus was not blessed because he was a Jew. The Jews were blessed because God chose the Jews to bring forth Jesus into the world. Think about it. In the beginning, there was no Jews. You say, Abraham, first Jew. Abraham was not a Jew. He came from the highest order of pagans that you can imagine. They were like Alpha, Beta, Kappa level. Sorcerers. Awful. Awful. Uh, they were not crude. They were sophisticated idolaters. That's where Abraham come from. He was not a Jew. Okay. He started the nation with Abraham. And over time, the nation Israel became proud, thinking God, and that's what we all do. Don't, don't look down on the, the Israelites. Don't look down on Jews and think, well, I wouldn't have done it that way. You would have probably done it a lot worse. Over time, they became proud and thinking God honored them because they were somehow worthy. They loved their laws and their rituals. And eventually, what did that turn into? Forgive me for beating that drum so much, but it, it turned into a money-making enterprise. They made their temple into a center of commerce. Remember in John chapter 2, the cleansing of the temple? When Jesus saw this, it made him so mad it enraged him and disgusted him. That's what people, Jews, Israelites, had deteriorated into by the time Jesus came to earth. Okay. They loved Abraham. They loved David. We just heard about David. However, salvation is not from Adam. We know about Adam. He fell. It's not from Moses. Salvation is not from David or Abraham. None of these people. Not Mephibosheth, not Abimelech, not anybody, not any of these Old Testament heroes. Salvation is from God. It's His idea. It's His gospel. He initiated it through Jesus. Look at this logically. It's God that we've sinned against. Not Moses, not Abraham, not David. It's just and it's fair. The offender, that's us, that's you, does not get to be the one to lay out the terms of reconciliation. It must be the one who has suffered wrong. Who has suffered wrong in the scheme of salvation? That's God. 
God has suffered wrong. We offended Him. We've insulted Him with our sin. We've sinned against Him. That's literally the language of the Bible. We sin against God. God has been offended and hurt and insulted by our sin. How silly is it? Looking at this just in our puny little pea brains, this, this little bit of logic. How silly is it to think that we can please God in our flesh? That's actually the lesson way back at the Tower of Babel. They said, we'll, we'll exalt ourselves above God. It don't work. That's actually what in chapter 4, verse 9 of Galatians, he said, you, don't, you want to return back to weak and elementary principles of the world? It's the same thing. It's your own reasoning. It's your own way of coming up with a solution. It's your own exalting yourself, saying, it's exactly what Lucifer done. He said, I'll, I'll be like God. No, you do not exalt your own flesh and reconcile yourself to God. Flesh and spirit only, ever, cooperated fully, where? In the person of Jesus. Fully man, fully God. That's the only time it ever worked, and that's what, that's what qualifies him to be our Savior. That's what qualifies him for God to accept his life and his sacrifice, his holy life, his resurrection. That's why God stamped approval and raised him from the dead. That, that's what qualifies him. Peace and mercy, there we are listed here, are found in God's gospel, not man's gospel. Not man's flesh. Not man's brain. How ridiculous can you be? Picture Paul sitting in his room dictating to his secretary to write this down. He probably looks tired. He's probably frustrated. Anguish on his face. He's already said, I feel like I'm going through childbirth again because I work so hard to present the gospel to you. Utter pagans, utter lost people, horribly lost. No religious history except for idolatry. He says, I worked, I worked, I worked, and I preached faithfully. He says, from now on, let no one cause me trouble. For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Now this was early. We've... Uh, I really don't know if this is actually Paul's first epistle. We do know that it's an early epistle of Paul's. It could be his first epistle. Already, before Romans, Corinthians, all the other epistles, that before all that, he's already tired of the hounding of the Judaizers. He's already tired of arguing with people. He's already tired. He said, don't come after my reputation anymore. Don't come after the gospel anymore. He's saying, I'm a legitimate apostle. My qualifications are strong. I know what I'm talking about. So stop being tossed about by every wind of doctrine. He says, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. 
this word marks is another Greek word that we have has come down in history to us as stigma. You say a person has a certain stigma about them. That's a, a, a quality or something about them that identifies them. You always know them because it's very obvious to you. There's a stigma. It means a spot or a label. In Paul's day, we've often talked about Old Testament and temple prostitutes. They had it right there. That's how you could spot one. That's not somebody's aunt or somebody's sister. That's a temple prostitute. They had a mark. Maybe, maybe cut. Maybe tattooed. I don't know. It was, it was a very, very prominent just on their forehead. They done it. Soldiers. We was talking last week. How soldiers love to get tattooed. That's not new. The soldiers done it. What would they do? They'd take their general or their outfit. Right here, man. It's labeled right there. You know, you knew where they stood. A slave that had been a problem had run away. Labeling. You remember the uh, the positive label in the Old Testament of a good slave when they got set free. The slave says, "No, I love my master." The other mark was you put him up against the doorpost and put an awl through his ear and put a ring in it. Good slave. This is a bad slave. They're branded. And who among us has not seen the cowboy movies with the calf down on the ground? They take the hot branding iron and burn that hair and that flesh away. High up on their hip so you can see it. You don't put it down on their, down here where you can't see them among all the other calves or the weeds. You put it high up. It's very prominent. Stigma. They're marked. This is what Paul said. I'm marked prominently. We see in Acts chapter 18, verse 1, part of Paul's history. What did he do instead of taking money from the churches? He was a tent maker. Probably had calloused hands. Maybe his hands were bent and crippled. Maybe that's why he couldn't write. We don't know. He says, I bear on my body the marks of Christ. Second Corinthians, he gives this list of what he went through. I was beaten three times with rods. This is a legal form of punishment. This is what the law could do. Beaten with rods for preaching. They came up with a legality, a technicality, where you couldn't whip certain people. Anything over 40 lashes was illegal. It was abusive. You couldn't do it. So they created a technicality. You can, you can hit them 39 times. Paul got that five times. Five times. Lashed with a whip. 39 licks for preaching. Jesus. He was adrift at sea, he says, a day and a night. 
Can you imagine being in the sea all night, not knowing if there's going to be, not seeing land, not hearing anything all day, no shade, the sun beating down, maybe the skin looked thin on Paul's ears and neck. Well, he'd say, somebody says, well, that, your skin looks thin. He says, it is thin. It got burnt off because I laid out in, in the sea clinging to a board all day and all night. He says, I was stoned in Lystra. That's a horrible, horrible thing to think. You don't do stoning as a, a misdemeanor punishment. When you stone somebody, you're going all the way. You stone them to kill them. You don't stop until you think they're dead. You don't use the little gravel out here in the parking lot. Ever how big a stone you could pick up? That's the one you use. And either at the beginning of the stoning or at the end of, either at the beginning, you take a large stone and keep them down, or at the end, you take one, a big stone and finish it. And they'd done that to Paul. And they thought he was dead. Some folklore says he was dead. They, they thought he was dead. They didn't stop till he was dead. Do you think that would leave a mark? Is that where we got the saying, boy, that's going to leave a mark? Paul said, just consider that too, these marks. Just about every instance, every scripture you can turn to there, it says they roused up the Jews or the Jews come forth or the city officials came forth. This was not criminals and uh, thugs beating up Paul and stoning him and whipping him. This was the religious people. This was the church people. That's the people he suffered at. Their hands. It makes me wonder. Paul says, I have these scars. Do you have scars? Are you a scar bearer for the gospel? We're church people. Or are you a scar maker? Would you do that to your brothers and sisters? Paul's finishing his epistle. He says, I've made my point. Anyone can tell who I belong to. Remember earlier in the epistle when the, he was trying to uh, argue with them and produce uh, evidence? He says, if you really want to do something, if you want to be known as a person or somebody that does good works or if you really want to live your life as a religious fanatic that, that lives their life by doing works, by doing good things, satisfying God. You, want to, you really want to do something? What he's telling them to do? He said, love one another. That's what you do. If you want to do something, love one another. It's the same principle here. He says, you like marks? You think circumcision is a good mark? You want to be branded that way? He says, I, I got the marks. Mm -hmm. if, you, if, you want to, if you want to go down that road... I got your marks. He says, anybody can tell 
who I belong to. He says, I am marked. And that's why Paul didn't, did not mind identifying himself as a slave of Jesus. He says, good, mark me. I'm, I'm your guy. In chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, Paul reminded the Galatians that he preaches the opposite of the Judaizers. And it has costed him much persecution. Would he earn, would he go through this, earning these marks of Christ for no reason? He had it made. He wouldn't have had to work. I mean, he was, he was a high up Pharisee. He would not have had to suffer this. He said no. He, what, how did he describe it? He said that stuff, that's what you put in the garden. That's what you put around that tree. That's manure. He said, all that stuff that I used to do, nothing. So, I got the marks. Please, listen. It's not circumcision, Paul says. It's not the Old Testament law. It's not being born into the right family or the right tribe. What's our takeaway? What's our conclusion, our doctrine here? All of the problems addressed in Galatians are summed up in verse 15. The churches in Galatia either contain people who were truly born again, regenerate Christians, but were acting as if they were not, or there were people who had never really experienced the rebirth of the Holy Spirit at all. Admittedly, we talked about this. They were probably young Christians. They had a lot to learn. Had a lot of uh, sanctification to go through. They didn't have scripture like we had. Uh, church was hard. Teachers were few and far between. They had a long ways to go. He says, a new creation. You have to be created anew. You have to be born again. In John 3, what did Jesus tell Nicodemus? Got to be born again. And Nicodemus, although he, he was an expert like Paul, he says, I don't get it. How, how does that work? I, I recommend, if you hadn't already, studying being born again or rebirth. This was nothing new. All the pagans have it had it back then. They had some kind of ritual they went through. It even carries on today. It's There's nothing new under the sun. But a believer's rebirth is their first taste of the new creation of all things seen in Isaiah chapter 43, 65, 66, and even in Revelation chapter 21. God says, Behold, I make all things new. It's a new creation. And that is the individual taste. When we're born again, when the Holy Spirit resides in a person, they lay down their life and say, Jesus, I want your life. That's, that's just a taste. That's just a, just a tiny part of the new creation. We're, from that instant on, we're connected to the new creation. We're headed to the new creation from that instant on. We even use the word regenerate. 
That's actually pretty good. That's accurate. Because it implies that the action taken is not from inside, but from an outside influence. Where is that outside influence? It's God. It's specifically, we cannot do this work on ourselves or for ourselves. It is entirely dependent on God. His working through His Spirit. He breathes spiritual life into us and convicts us of our sins and grants us repentance of that sin. That's how we enter into the new creation. It's not becoming a better you. It's not adopting new morals or getting your act together. Think about it. All them things anybody can do. Men can do that. They do it every day. They'll do it for a job. They'll do it for a girlfriend or a boyfriend. They'll do it to make good grace. They'll do it. Anybody can do that. For example, we may say, I made a cake. Or a couple may say, we created a baby. That's not true. People do not create. Only God creates. We put things together or assemble components, but only God has ever created. That'll help you understand the new creation. If you think about the word in Genesis 1, ex nihilo, out of nothing, God created everything. Only God can make a new creation in a, in a sinner's heart. Somebody that's his enemy, he takes them, Conversion is a good word. In Colossians chapter 1, the end of chapter, I mean verse 6 says, All things were created by Him and for Him. God creates. The new creation is a work of God by His Spirit. It's not something that you do with a flint knife or a surgeon does or something that we make a sacrifice or some, something we decide in our heads. It's a work of God. The same is true in salvation. We can't make ourselves over. We can't initiate our rebirth. Again, be practical. You had no say-so. You had no influence on your first birth, did you? Nah. All you had to do was show up. So being born again, and this is in God's design, it's a perfect way to understand God's work spiritually in our lives. And I, heard, I know you've heard this before. The only thing we contribute is the sin that makes it necessary. That's our, that's our contribution to our salvation. An old saying says, born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23 we see that we are born of imperishable seed. This is something eternal. Our first father, Adam, was perishable. He failed. He fell. But being born of the Holy Spirit makes us immortal. It makes us eternal. It makes us fit for heaven in Bible language. What was the Galatians' problem? And this is, this is over, over, and over especially in the New Testament, but you can see shades of it in the Old Testament. They were trying to accomplish spiritual and eternal results by using temporal 
and fleshly devices. And it was characterized, it was labeled, the sign of this was circumcision. They hung on to it as if it was, as if it was something special, something that could save them. They were focused on a specific methodology. But really, it's a giant category. You can have, remember, there's two kinds of people, saved and lost. There's two ages, the age, present age, age to come. There's two categories of religion. There's works, and there's Christianity. Christianity, salvation in Christ alone, through faith alone, and then there's everything else on this column. Every other religion, every other formula of man. It's, you can put it all over there and it all falls under the category of works. So what's the solution? Agree with God about your sin. Confess it to Him. Repent and turn from your sin. And follow Jesus in faith. And this is not a formula just for new believers. True, if you think you hit a home run, you run all the way around the bases and the ump says you missed second base, don't mean anything. But you do have to be saved. You do have to be saved first. You do have to be born again. But it's not just for new believers. This is also how are we to live our lives. We're saved by grace through repentance and faith, and that's how we do every day. Every day. You think you didn't sin today? Check again. Repent. Exercise your faith. Always repenting. Always renewing our faith. And turn to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to end with this. Paul, uh, like I said, many of the churches he wrote to, he repeated. It's the, same, it's the same formula over and over and over. He would write it a different way. Even the list of uh, fruit of the Spirit and the opposing sins, the opposing uh, works of the flesh in another form. They're, they're listed otherwhere, everywhere, not specifically the fruit of the Spirit, but goods and bads. He says, put off, the, put off the bad things, take up the good things. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I'm going to finish with this. This is what he told the Corinthians. It's very similar to what he told the Galatians. We're going to read verses 14 through 21. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this that one has died for all substitutionary atonement therefore all who have died and he therefore all for whom I'm sorry I'm starting over for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this that one has died for all therefore all have died and he died for all that those who might live that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, regard no one according to the flesh. 
That's nationality, that's family, that's circumcision. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, Paul thought that Jesus was just another man. He tried to see him as, as uh, just practical, not as spiritual. He says, I don't think that way about him anymore. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. There it is, a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled to us, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's about what Jesus has done. It's about his sacrifice. It's not about circumcision. It's not about keeping commandments. We're supposed to keep the commandments, but it won't save you. There's lots of, lots of lost people that are moral and do good things and do good deeds. They're humanitarians. They'll fry in hell forever without Christ. Let's pray.